to episode 275 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one, and in part two, we will be continuing our best of the decade retrospective look back with 2014. Uh, But let's go ahead and jump into uh, movies that we saw this week, and Michael, you had a couple that you wanted to touch on. Yeah, I haven't seen a ton of new movies recently, but I did catch a couple of old ones. Um, the The first one I caught was uh, 1973's Heavy Traffic, which is the, I believe it's the second feature film from the kind of notorious slash famed uh, kind of alternative uh, animator, uh, Ralph Bakshi. Um, what all so have you seen by him, by the way? I have seen, so I've seen Heavy Traffic, I've seen American Pop, I've seen uh, what's the, Wizards. I've seen Wizards. I've seen um, he has like a high fantasy one that's not Wizards. I'm blanking on it's like Fire and Ice, I think. Um, and so I'm kind of obsessed with Ralph Bakshi, not because I've I've actually not really totally. Oh, he did the <laughs> he did the Lord of the Rings. I'm, I'm for, I forgot that um, the animated one. That's right. Uh, the Rankin yep. Bass animated one, I believe. Um, but I, I'm kind of obsessed with, with uh, Bakshi not because I've really liked strongly any of his movies, but I really, really, really want to like his movies um, because they're just so interesting on a formal level. Like, cause his sort of starting point um, is that how much he hates, like at the time, and I guess this is less true now because we've had a proliferation of other studios, but at the time in like the seventies when he was kind of at his height, um, American animation was totally dominated by Disney. Like, I remember I did a letterbox list a few years ago, or not a few years ago, a few months ago, um, about um, kind of like counter-programming Disney. And there are like long stretches in American film history where there were literally no other animated movies released other than those released by Disney. Um, And like the 1960s and 70s Mm -hmm. were definitely true of that. Uh, So you you have this kind of dominance uh, before like people like Don Bluth and then later like Jeffrey Katzenberg like split off from Disney and did their own thing. Uh, Ralph Bakshi is like one of the early um, people who's like, you know, uh, fighting back against that kind of like hegemony of like American animation. And so his big thing is basically making like hard R and occasionally like X-rated animated movies that are like explicitly for adults and like thumbing their nose at like a lot of the you know, the, the, like, um, uh, politeness that, and the, you know, uh, like whitewashing of Disney movies. Um, uh, so not just in the content, but the animation side as well. Um, Bakshi is really pushing against the, the dominant, like Disney aesthetic where, you know, Disney is very, um, formally elaborate and like, you have whole teams of animators working on these movies and, um, Bakshi is really interested in like um, making movies that are visibly hand drawn and sketchy, and um, using really unconventional techniques. Like he uh, later on would uh, not so much in heavy traffic when I watch this time, but he later on kind of becomes notorious for like uh, both as a cost saving measure and also as an aesthetic choice using tons of rotoscoping. Where he'll like in the Lord of the Rings, he does this a ton. Where uh, you know he'll do live action footage that he then like you know. Uh, draws all over the frame and or just uses a color filter to kind of make it aesthetically fit in with the movie um and so like he's he's this really gritty and interesting uh visual auteur i guess um 
And I like the idea of making like, you know, animation for adults and stuff like that. And heavy traffic is kind of interesting in that regard too. It's a, it's a sort of pseudo follow-up to uh, his earlier movie, Fritz the Cat. So Fritz the Cat is like taking a kind of a notorious, like notoriously sexual, like comics uh, involving a cat basically as like a modern urbanite going on all these like sexual adventures. And I've not seen the Bakshi's movie, but that was kind of his like, entrance into like American film and it like was really successful commercially for the kind of movie that it was um and so um the whole conceit there is using animals as stand-ins for like various like urban types you know so it's like a really scuzzy like 1960s 70s New York City but populated by animals um like this I mean obviously like Zootopia hadn't uh, been invented by Disney but it feels like a conscious like uh rebuke to like the kind of like urban utopia of something like Zootopia. Um, but, um, heavy traffic is like that, except it's people now instead of animals. Um, and so it's just like this guy who, who's like a budding animator who lives in this apartment with his mom and dad who bicker all the time. And he goes on all these weird like adventures in New York city. Um, and, um, it's just like this really uh, just scuzzy, gross movie that I think, like, is kind of interesting because of how scuzzy and gross, like, it is. Like, you just have these just bizarre um, animation choices, like, just, like, fucking, like, this, like, he, this guy, like, pogo sticks on his boner around and, like, bizarre <laughs> stuff like that that, like, is... <laughs> I mean, this is Ralph Bakshi. is like, he has this weird, like, yeah. urban sensibility where and like so he'll do things too like record people on the street um and then animate them in the in mm. the film and so the film has this really almost like it feels a little bit like what martin scorsese does on like uh mean streets or something like that where there's this really alive quality to a lot of the audio where there's like overlapping dialogue and all this like noise that's not traditionally in like an animation uh, because it's not done in a sound stage um and so like this is really interesting mix of like this like sexual and violent imagery with like this like uh vibrant urban space however and the reason why i say i've never really liked the ralph bakshi movie is that like it's also like super racist and homophobic and in this movie transphobic there's a there's a trans character who is just um uh cringy to say the least um and this is just a thing that he just, I guess, can't resist doing. Like, even in something like Wizards, there's just all this, like, bizarre sexism that's thrown in there. Not even of, like, the traditional, like, um, uh, you know, high fantasy kind of damsel type. Like, he just, like, has to draw nipples everywhere. Um, and, like, the, the female characters are constantly just, like... And I guess the male characters, too, to be fair. But they're just, like, constantly, like, you know, just slipping out of their clothes in this really... But especially the women in this really gross way and the... The black characters um, are very stereotyped and the, the N-word has dropped quite a bit. Um, and so long story short, like my, my quest to find the, the unproblematic Ralph Bakshi movie that I like remains... <laughs> I don't know if that's a quest that you can... Uh, you can <laughs> it probably is not out there, but it remains unfulfilled um, because heavy traffic is... Michael, have you... Uh, sorry to continue interrupting. Have you been listening to the new uh, series of You Must Remember This? I listened to the first three episodes. The last one was on... Uh, how do you make... Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, the the uh, minstrel one was the last one I listened to. Yeah. So for, for 
people listening who are uninitiated, um, there's a new season of You Must Remember This, the film history podcast uh, that is all about, uh, the new season is all about Song of the South and various um, connections that can be drawn from Song of the South to other contemporary issues and other films and et cetera. Uh, and one, the most recent episode uh, spends quite a bit of time talking about Ralph Bakshi's Coonskin, uh, oh, which I believe he made in direct response to the the re-releasing of Song of the South. And Karina Longworth's take was that he was um, like exaggerating all of the problematic elements to make them to make it clear that they were problematic and like have his movie be about these issues and start a conversation that people weren't wanting to to have. Uh, and I haven't seen any Bakshi movies, so I, I can't speak to the validity of that argument. But uh, I'm wondering how that holds up with something like Heavy Traffic. Well, uh, I mean, I think I can imagine him doing that. Uh, Bakshi's kind of a character who's like, I don't know if you, how much you guys have listened to like Frank Zappa's music or something like that, where there's always like a quote, there's always a reason behind like a lot of the stuff he does, you know, and transgression and that sort of like, social satire is always the reason, but there becomes a point, and this is true of like Frank Zappa too, and stuff like that, where you just get so buried in like stereotype and stuff, and there's no way to peer out of it, that it just feels gross in a way that's not engaging to me. So like in heavy traffic, you know, there's a lot of like, I guess stuff in the movie, like for instance, with the trans character, you know, that you see the trans character get beat up like constantly. Um, And like, I'm sure if you, push Bakshi with that. He's like, well, this is what happened to, you know, uh, trans sex workers in the 1970s in New York. And I mean, to a certain extent today too, but there's just nothing the movie does with that other than just depict like just this wretched like condition. And I can see that working in, in isolation, but I've seen enough of Bakshi's movies to know that like, at least with some of these things, like I feel like he's having his cake and eating it too, like regarding like, for instance, the sexism, um, there's a running thread in heavy traffic about like this, you know, this, this kind of, what feels like a kind of seventies idea of like, you know, um, the artist character's mom is, uh, emasculating of the father and the father is in return, like kind of abusive to her and stuff like that. But like, you know, the, the, you know, abuse is all very cartoonish, but the, for whatever reason, the, the mother character comes off very, she's also cartoonish, but I don't know. There's no interactions with the mother that feel positive or meaningful. Whereas there's a few scenes with the dad that actually do. And so there, I believe that Ralph Bakshi has like satirical and, and commentary reasons for the, the choices that he makes. And like, you know, that hearing that about Coonskin doesn't surprise me. However, you know, it's, I don't know. There's also just this element of like, it's there because this is just on a whim. Like, you know, I decided that like, I'm just going to be transgressive and put this thing in. And I I think it's like both. And so like there, there are elements of this that work better than others, but in heavy traffic, it, there's enough of it that I think that doesn't work, that it keeps me from really like embracing the movie, uh, even on like a satirical level. So that was heavy traffic. Um, <laughs> it was. It, I found it on YouTube. If you're if you're interested, and I I would say like if you're purely interested in like the history of animation and like interesting animation styles and all that, like it's an interesting movie. Uh, and I didn't mention the soundtrack, but the soundtrack is very good as well. There's a lot of like kind of um, jazzy, funky covers of like, for instance, like Simon and Garfunkel, like that Scarborough Fair 
uh, folk song that they reinterpreted. Like there's a really great like recurring motif with that and stuff. But, um, you know, so there's a lot, like, this is true of like all the Bakshi movies I've seen is like, there's really compelling, interesting stuff like mixed in with stuff that I don't care for at all. Are you planning on watching Fritz the cat? I probably will at some point. Um, I don't know. You know, at this point I kind of am, I know what I'm in for with his movies, but I'm interested enough of in his like philosophical project and like aesthetic project that I might, I might check him out, even though I've, I'm kind of tongue in cheek about the quest to find the unproblematic Bakshi <laughs> movie because I, I think it probably Is Lord exist. of the Rings not the unproblematic Bakshi? <laughs> um, it's probably yeah, like for different yeah, yeah. reasons, like storytelling reasons and stuff. It's cramming um, three it's not, long it's not Tolkien books and, into like less than an hour, right? Well, it's, it's really just like, one and a half um they never there was supposed to be a sequel that uh he was never involved in i think rankin bass did a return of the king movie but um there was uh like bakshi wasn't involved with that but that i mean that movie is kind of interesting too in the history of it because uh peter jackson like basically cribs a ton of it for his lord of the rings movies because i guess he loved it as a kid and that was kind of his introduction to lord of the rings but well, well yeah. that's how we make our pop culture now. So that that <laughs> that tracks. Um, yeah, you had one other movie. Yeah. Uh, so, um, speaking of weird, like idiosyncratic, um, you know, male directors on the fringes of the mainstream, um, I watched uh, the House of a Thousand Corpses, um, which is directed, of course, by Rob Zombie, and uh, I've never seen a Rob Zombie movie before, so this is my introduction to it and uh it's his debut and uh it it feels like a debut to me uh it's just like a ton of stuff he throws in there um a lot of it is kind of visibly um inspired visibly and thematically inspired by uh the texas chainsaw massacre because uh the movie centers on like um i guess it's a family um a group of people somewhere off of like a you know some abandoned highway somewhere you know kind of living the uh, you know, off the beaten track, uh, who have this weird, like, curiosity shop slash horror, uh, shop, but they're also cannibal murderers, um, and so there's definitely, um, you you have a, like, hapless people who stumble into their shop and then, for one reason or another, offend the sensibilities of the people running the place, um, so, uh, you have these, you know, kind of, like, you know, clearly more, like, urban and, like uh, quote unquote sophisticated cosmopolitan people who come in and kind of um, are kind of interested in the the curiosity shop, but are also kind of doing it for for yucks and like you know how um, you know how quaint these locals are and that sort of thing and uh, you know um, eventually the the people don't don't take kindly to that and so they're uh, the visitors are subjected to basically torture and so like the first half of the movie is like the build up to like eventually them being, um, you know, captured and tortured by the, um, by the, the keepers of the curiosity shop. And then the second half of the movie is just like the torture itself. Um, and I, I say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because, um, there's like that scene in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre where they go in the house and they're like subjected to that really bizarre, like nightmare of a dinner or like the whole, uh, Chainsaw Massacre family is just like sitting around the dinner and it's just like really warped, like I can't remember the name. Do they have names? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre family. There's Bob Chainsaw Massacre. 
Oh, Cindy Chainsaw Massacre. I remember yeah, that, the first time I laid eyes on you. <laughs> said, one day I'm going to make you a Mrs. Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> little Billy came into our life. That little Chainsaw Massacre was a lot. But anyway, they're sitting around in this really bizarre and horrifying version of like an atomic family. Um, and this movie kind of does that same thing where it takes this kind of like Americana slash like, you know, you know, traditionally coded as wholesome things and just like makes them into like, you know, nightmares. Um, and I like, honestly, like I, I feel like that this movie kind of runs that into the ground, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's one scene that's like a really interesting, like, uh, flair that like, like contextualizes a lot of the rest of the movie. Whereas in this movie, it's like kind of the whole conceit. Um, and I think it just gets, it just feels like just worn out by the end. And I think part of that is maybe there's just not enough that happens in the movie. Um, the movie is very structureless. I, I feel like it, it feels like it meanders through each section without like a real direction. Um, and then also like the, uh, the cinematic style itself, which I don't know if this is true of all of zombies movies or not, since I've not seen them, but it has this like kind of like psychedelic, like weird thing where, um, a lot of the shots will be in, uh, inverted colors and, um, you know, there's just a real like hallucinatory, um, feel to a lot of it. And, uh, it's very busy. Like, you know, the shots don't last very long and like, you just have like, you know, this constant like sensory input from a lot of it, which is really interesting at first. And I think by the end, I just feel exhausted by it. Um, so like, maybe this is like Bakshi in the sense that like, I didn't love the whole movie, but there's like interesting wrinkles to it. And so I, you know, I, I gather from people who like Rob Zombie movies that like The Devil's Rejects, which is a sequel to this, is a much more successful um, movie than this is. And then, you know, I know that the uh, Halloween remake and its sequel have its defenders as well. Um, so I'm interested in seeing what else Rob, Rob Zombie has to do um, and what he accomplishes, because, you know, there's there's the seeds of a lot of interesting stuff here. But uh, as a movie itself, House of a Thousand Corpses was just OK, I thought. Yeah, we have uh, we have a really good uh, defense of uh, the Halloween movies on the website, so I would uh, recommend checking that out. And honestly, I want to spend the rest of this time just riffing on the Chainsaw Massacre family, but we'll move on. <laughs> uh, we'll say that that it's like a it's like a Hispanic last naming convention thing where like one party's last name was Chainsaw and the other party's last name was Massacre, and so, they oh, just so it's like hyphenated. Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Chainsaw Massacre and Mr. Massacre. <laughs> that's Mr. Massacre to you. Yeah, that's that's for the Patreons. That's why you that's why you pay the big money. You, you want to get the riffin of the. I don't know why I'm Italian. Anyway, um, <laughs> moving on real quickly. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Transit, which is the latest film from writer director Christian Petzold. Uh, I also wrote about it on Cinematary.com, so you can find it there. Um, but I know both of you also saw this movie and it's kind of a weird one. Cause it's been at least in, in terms of like, it's been floating around like my sphere since, uh, not this year's TIFF, but last year's TIFF. Um, I ended up seeing cold war instead of transit at last year's TIFF, uh, which poor mistake on my part. Uh, should have, should have. See, they're kind of similar movies, right? Yeah, except one of them is very. I don't think they're similar at all. One of them is a lot better. No, I haven't seen Cold War, so I can't um, say. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, Transit. 
I think kind of the most defining quality of it for most people is the conceit that is in place. Uh, you, so the, it's based on a, a novel from 1942 of the same name uh, by Anna Seggers. Seggers, yeah. Uh, and pretty much the story is this guy is trying to flee Nazi-occupied France, um, and he assumes the identity of this uh, dead author, and he finds himself stuck in Marseille, where at the the port city in France, where he ends up uh, connecting with the woman who is the uh, the wife of this dead author, and falls in love with her, and so um, it's kind of this melodrama about uh, their relationship as well as this uh, thriller about trying to escape uh, you know the the encroaching Nazi forces as they make their way through France uh, but Christian Petzl does not make it a historical piece it's not in the vein of something like his previous film Phoenix it is uh, very much in the modern setting I mean there are cell phones and modern cars and the police officers or the soldiers are like decked out in like padded black uh, police armor with semi-automatic weapons uh and so it's interesting i think that that's probably something that throws a lot of people because they're like well wait it's 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 world war ii it's the nazis um where are all the uh the the for lack of a better word the pageantry of the uh (laughs) of the Axis powers uh, at that time. Um, I really... Well, forgive me if you've already mentioned this and I just zoned out, but it, it's also adapted from a World War II yes, era novel, I, that. I believe, and he just chose he just chose to not set it in the past. Yeah, he just... He, t- he, he play just, everything else straight. Yeah, he just made the, 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 the decision to just play it in, modern, in a modern setting. The story's pretty much the same, but it's just played in the modern setting. The only, like, period-centric thing that you could see is, like, the the visas or the transit passes that they acquire, like, look like they're from the 1940s, <laughs> which is kind of striking, like, uh, within the, the modern realm. Um, but I really like that. I think it's kind of this interesting commentary on uh, the fact that it's like we are looking for these... Uh, symbols and familiarities of the Nazis and rather than kind of focus in this, uh, this makes you focus in on like what um, not only what ideologically they were standing for, but also like the, the kind of psychological ramifications it had on just the vast amount of people throughout Europe um, because you're, you're stuck for, for the majority in this movie in this port city where uh, people are kind of, in very similar predicaments to, to the main character George, uh, they're they're trying to apply and get these visas and transit passes so they can get on a boat and get out and you know go to uh, go up to Spain and then to the United States to escape. Um, it's just kind of a, a pe- people from ver- various walks of life and uh, in from different you know kind of classes like that you have these uh relatively wealthy people and then you also have uh people who are kind of on the fringes who just don't have the ability in order to escape and are trying to figure out how to uh kind of just accept the in in, survive the situation that's about to kind of uh take over the city um yeah I, i expanded on that a lot in my in my review i'm curious uh this is a movie that came out earlier it was released um in the united states earlier this year um i mean is this something is this a movie that i know andrew you mentioned that it'll probably end up on your top 10 list at the end of the year 
Yeah, I I, I didn't um, have a, a strong reaction the day that I saw it, and I saw it with Michael so he can attest to the conversation we had afterwards, mostly me being confused um, because it is – it has a confusing narrative in terms of the way it, it doles out and withholds information from you. Uh, but as the year has gone on. Well, then there's also stuff at the end. There's the ending is kind of a, opaque. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of ambiguity in, as, sense of, like, in terms of like what is real and what is not at the end of the film. Um, so we were mostly kind of talking about that sort of, you know, just what, what literally happened Um kind of questions as the year has gone on it it has really resonated with me and i I do think it's one of the best films of the year it will definitely be on my top 10 Um, and i'm curious to to talk to you about it in relation to uh hidden life but michael i know you haven't seen hidden life so uh, what are your general thoughts about uh transit now that you've had a couple months um to sit on it um i mean I, i really like it and i think um I might have said this at the time. I definitely wrote it on Letterboxd because I'm looking at the Letterboxd review. But I think one of the things that really stands with me is the um, the way it captures the sort of um, the the psychological and like you know personal experience of being like a person who's who's in you know I mean like the house is in transit or like a person without a con- without a country right or you're in a country in which you know, you know that you're either there temporarily or you're there in a way that, you know, the authorities of the country would not approve of. Um, and I think it's like a really evocative um, view of that. And I mean, of course, you can spin that into like, you know, it's modern setting, you know, with, um, you know, a bunch of, you know, immigrant experiences in the United States or refugee experiences in, in Europe um, where this is set. And I, you know, I that's what resonates with me is the sort of, you know, the fact that he has to don the persona of someone else in order to merely exist, um, in, in, you know, where he is at the moment, which is still like a a place of like, you know, extreme limbo, uh, and just like, you know, kind of weird, like purgatorial element to it. And, um, like, I just, I just think that's just endlessly interesting. Um, the, I remember when you and I saw it, Andrew, beforehand, you mentioned that, um, it was, uh, I don't remember who, maybe this was Nathan who had told you that this is kind of like, sort of based on uh Casablanca in a way um which of course in in a yeah yeah I mean Nathan Nathan explained on the pod um early this year uh that all of Christian Petzl's movies are sort of like reinterpretations of either older films or uh, periods of history that are that are being um uh being put through this this interesting like uh temporal like genre fluctuation by Petzold um whereas yeah, cause, like um, Phoenix would be like Vertigo or something like yeah that. Phoenix is I Vertigo he uh Yella I think that movie is Carnival of Souls um and then this is supposed to be Casablanca well so what I think is interesting about the Casablanca connection is like so of course in Casablanca what you have is you know a a, a city in which you know it's a it's like a you know basically like a crossroads for a bunch of different people um including Nazi forces, including like, you know, people who are essentially refugees and things like that in that movie. But then you have Humphrey Bogart, who is like the kind of like anchor, like a kind of like uh, a a thing of like a, a character of stability um, in some regards. And people come to him needing things and he's kind of the centerpiece of the movie. Um, and for this movie, Transit, like that, it kind of takes that stability away Um you know, the I mean, there there's like a kind of, you know, history in Casablanca about its role, like in like, you know, 
anti-Nazi propaganda and stuff like that. And I think that transit like strips those, those kind of comforting elements away from the Casablanca story and makes it so that there's not a character that you look, you know, as a sort of, um, stability, people can come to each other for help, but that doesn't mean that they're reliable for each other. Um, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, any sort of nationalist or, um, even like, you know, uh, propagandistic elements of like, you know, classic Hollywood has been stripped away from this story. And so you just have like this story that's just all these shifting, uh, you know, shifting situations where you can't truly ever be, um, you know, comfortable, um, in, in this, um, in the world. And I guess that leads right into my comparison to Hidden Life, uh, because I feel like both of those films are presenting Nazism as a sort of moral dilemma for um, ordinary citizens and how ordinary citizens are to respond to the rise of fascism. Um, when you say both films, like Transit and Hidden Life? Transit and Hidden Life, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Hidden Life uh, really romanticizes to a certain extent although i i still am kind of unclear on what extent it's romanticizing it uh this this like noble suffering this just like refusing to comply um no matter you know to, to the death um if if you need to be to put in prison and, and executed by the the nazis or fascists of of whatever world that you're living in uh, it's it's the right thing to just refuse and deal with the consequences of that and transit is much more about being subversive about trying to um, do things under the table uh, trying to uh, save yourself uh, by any means necessary and and save those around you who you can help if you can help them Um, and you know a a thing that i've thought about regarding um, transit in the past several months is, um, you know, Michael last, the last two years, uh, we worked together at a, at a rural school in, in Knoxville or, or outside of Knoxville, very close to where this like infamous ice raid was in Morristown, Tennessee. Um, which I think is, is very similar to the types of raids that you see happen in transit. Um, and of course, transit is about a character like trying to do whatever he can to, you know, escape from situations like that and help people avoid situations like that. But of course, I didn't hear about the Morristown raid until after the fact. You know, like the these big uh, insurgent, um, you know, fascist, violent, whatever you want to call them. Uh, there, there's there's very little way to like be aware of them ahead of time enough to actually do something about it. Um, especially if you're not like already like extremely organized with, with a larger group of people who are fighting back. Um, so I don't know. I think those are two films that are talking to each other in interesting ways. And I, I ultimately am a lot more compelled by what transit ends up doing. But, um, Zach, I'm, I'm curious what, what you think of the comparison. Well, the 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 kind of moral crisis that's happening in, in a hidden life is a little bit different from transit, just because uh, I think there is like this vast um, ocean between uh, kind of the 
more pastoral rule setting of something like uh, a hidden life. In transit, a lot of this is happening within like kind of a, I mean, Marseille is not necessarily metropolitan compared to like Paris where they start, but it's still like within like an urban setting. Uh, I mean, it's 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 very much a city that with a functioning port, so there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of uh, kind of the the mechanics of of the how the city is working is 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 vastly different from like the the farmland of 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 a hidden life, and so I think what's compelling about to me about the way that um, Terrence Malick handles like that. Um, that the kind of thought process the main character is going through in that movie on the ideology, the fascist ideologies that are being presented to him is that, um, and, and it's kind of presented leading up to that decision is that, uh, he, they're in this place where there's really no connection to, um, anything else in the world. Like they, they are just kind of isolated. I mean, you have these scenes where, You'll hear like the pl- like the the planes, the Nazi planes up in the sky, and you can hear them coming kind of at a distance, like this kind of in- this this modernity kind of encroaching on this on this pastoral setting. But you never see them like really, uh, like go overhead or or really breach that that uh that barrier. They're always kind of secluded from, um, the greater purpose that's happening, and it feels like transit like you're within that like what what you know what's happening like you're you're in the kind of in the thick of it um and so the character of in in a hidden life i think he has the luxury of of that and and to me it's just more compelling because i guess i i have a degree um i i mean i it's i guess it's it is empathy i don't know if empathy is the right word in this context but i i but empathy toward like why like the people of his village were like succumb to the to that uh, ideology compared to people like in transit. Like in transit, yeah. It, like the they they're out, seeing the violence firsthand. They're seeing the violence firsthand, and they and like you described, like they're constantly figuring out. Like the, it, I mean, they're like a they're like a basketball point guard looking for the lane. Like they're just constantly looking where they can go next to kind of escape things. They may not a hundred percent agree with with the, but they're like I don't I don't agree with it, but I'm also gonna find my way to get a, get out of the way from it. Um, and in this one, like the people of that village and in life, kind of get succumbed to that ideology because I think it it, it sounds like they don't they don't have any frame of reference outside of that, and that sounds they're like yeah I agree with all that I would like to, um you know I would I would like to keep like this 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 kind of pastoral the Volk as they as they always uh, as they mention a lot in, in kind of Nazi text uh, kind of keeping that in in place because that's that's all they know that's 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 literally their entire frame of reference um, and so they're just kind of easy targets to to kind of uh, instill that on um, and I think that kind of to, to bring it to more contemporary settings i think it's that's it's it's very similar it's it's very similar but also a little dissimilar in terms of like how um the current administration is able to kind of implant their ideology on more rural settings because there is a connection to the grander to just through technology a connection to the grander uh, idea than they had in uh you know 1933 1934 um 
And so there's something, and that's why I think in a more modern sense, there, there is this kind of romance that I enjoy in A Hidden Life, but I think that there's also this something much more, um, there's just something much more uh, kind of damning in, in transit compared to, to A Hidden Life, just because you can, like, there is, a, I think there is, because of that, the, the taking, da- taking down of like the historical period and, and setting it in a modern setting, it, it kind of destroys that facade and shows that it can be any time period in in life um and you can succumb to these these kind of ideological uh uh persuasions so long story short i like both of them (laughs) yeah and it's on canopy now is that right transit is on canop or no transit is on uh or amazon prime okay yeah, and then Hidden Life will be out in theaters next month. Yeah, it'll be out. Um, but you can read Zach's review of Transit on Cemetery, and you can read me and Dylan talking a lot about A Hidden Life as part of our Nashville coverage on Cinematary. Um, you can also yeah. read Zach read, talking about Hidden, <laughs> Hidden Life oh, on, yes. uh, on, on and his Jessica coverage, talking yeah. about it from, from TIFF. So well, you can read about both on the website. Um, we're going to take a short break, though. We'll be back talking about the year 2014 and those movies after this. Hey, Cinematariats. This is your co-host, Lydia Creech, with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we definitely want your money. We still want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema, but now we're getting into the Patreon game, baby. We've brought on a lot of new voices to contribute to the site, and we want to honor our responsibility to compensate all these smart people for their hard work. To help us out, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary to sign up at the $5 a month level. In exchange, our patrons will get an exclusive bonus episode every month, weekly shoutouts on each episode of the show, and the ability to dictate a movie for us to cover eventually. If money's tight, we get it. There are still a few things you can do that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's free to help us reach more listeners. <laughs> Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, to let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating and our film discussions we put out every week. So, to recap, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, share with your friends and family, and sign up to be a patron. We would truly appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for listening, and now back to the show.
And we are back with part two of episode 275 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our best of the decade look back with the year 2014. I feel like we're a little bit more streamlined. We're getting we're getting like a groove on this thing now at this point. Yeah. Um, we, we had to like work the kinks out last week. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know ap- if that came I across to, listeners, to our listeners. We, we had way too much stuff going on. <laughs> Honestly, though, if you look back at it, so many damn movies came out that year. We missed like 15 that we probably also could. But anyway, um, so we got let's let's kind of we have some topics that we're going to work off of and kind of uh, we have a, a list of movies that kind of work with those topics. So I think talking in a much more broader sense will help uh, help keep this in place a little bit. So let's start. Um, kind of at the multiplex with the action movies of this year because actually this is a pretty solid action movie year and a lot of these kind of have influenced how we're getting action movies today. I think the two big ones that we have kind of stacked up against each other is John Wick, the first one came out this year, versus Captain America Winter Soldier. Um, but you also have things like Lucy, Snowpiercer, Edge of Tomorrow. Um, I think the the John Wick Winter Soldier kind of comparison is interesting because John Wick has definitely been a massive influence on a lot of kind of these uh, genre action movies that have, or st- just I say stylized action movies that have uh, kind of fallen s- suit. And you have something like Winter Soldier, which kind of tried to bring that... Um, not necessarily the stylized action. I think that came a little bit later with Marvel, um, but it definitely and that it definitely brings like the physicality of John Wick because J- John Wick at the at its core is like this very physical kind of brooding film, um, and Winter Soldier kind of tries to bring that uh, with. I mean, the, you have the elevator scene that's 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 pretty much the trailer for that movie, um, but just in the in terms of like the way. It, it like the fights are set up between because you have the Winter Soldier and Captain America and it, and they're just very, I mean you have the whole homoerotic subtext to it but also just like the uh, it just it feels like very two brute forces kind of mashing against each other uh, compared to like the gung fu, the gun fu of uh, John Wick, um, Andrew Michael I'm curious. Well, and it's also go ahead. I was gonna bring up Winter Soldier. It's also kind of it's one of the first like Marvel movies that kind of, I guess, marketed itself as a genre exercise because they had the whole, yeah, like, you're right. we have Robert Redford in this movie. This is like a throwback to the conspiracy. Yeah, this is the whole, this is the first one where it's like, it's a superhero movie, but it's really a 70s paranoia thriller. And later we get, oh, it's a Wolverine movie, but it's really a Western. And it's Spider-Man, but it's really a John Hughes film. So this was their first go at that. Which I will say, like, is not the worst thing that happened to superhero movies, because I think it it gives focus to them. So, like, I prefer Winter Soldier a lot to, like, most of the Avengers movies, for example, because it has a like a story that's self-contained. It has a, a, an aesthetic it mostly sticks to. And, you know, I mean, John Wick does all that with, you know, a lot more panache. But, you know, if we're talking about Marvel yeah. movies, Winter Soldier, I think is... I would right. say kind of. I, like, I heard all this um, praise for Captain America Winter Soldier um, in the years that I wasn't watching any Marvel movies because I, I stopped watching them after the first Avengers film and then late like this year went back and filled in the gaps for myself. Um, but when I went back and watched winter soldier, like, Oh, this is the good one. This is the one that people like. This is the one that's like a, a tight genre film. And I found it overlong baggy, narratively messy, 
horribly uh, like photographed in terms of actually putting action on screen. Like there's just too much cutting, too much fakery. And I, I didn't feel like it worked at all. And, and hearing all that praise about it made me dislike it more. And you compare that to like John Wick, which is much more, you know, talking about how weighty yeah. it is. John Wick is much more streamlined. I mean, there's literally the plot is is, you know, just a sentence, you know, it's it's not like, yeah, I think that that's something dude avenges his dog. Yeah, I think that's something that we that, that we miss about like what's so effective about John Wick is that it's so there even now, like in the third movie where the it's the, the mythologies become a little bit more complicated. It's not really that complicated still. Um, and I think that the streamlined simpleness of John Wick was what's what's also endearing about it compared to Winter Soldier, which, while it was still early in the, uh, you know, in the Marvel cir- uh, circuit, like it still had a lot of mythos connected to it because this movie also is like connecting to Iron Man and like pre Avengers stuff. Like it, it's still connecting to all of this uh, mythos that makes it so convoluted. One thing that makes this um, like pairing John Wick with Winter Soldier kind of interesting is I think it reveals maybe like a, not a tension, but maybe the two directions that the action, like that action movies went in the 2010s, which is that you have something like Winter Soldier, which is like part of a franchise. And like, like you were pointing out, Andrew, like the much ballyhooed, like, you know, moody, like 70s conspiracy theory thing is really hemmed in by a kind of, you know, really conventional like house style for Marvel. And I think that you know, this is a constantly like a frustration for a lot of people with these movies is that like, you know, they have these little flourishes, like that gesture at like this kind of interesting vision or something new, but ultimately you have them kind of constrained to a certain house style. And so you have like the kind of franchise model, which in which like all the movies are trying to be similar to one another. And, you know, I've, you know, that I, there's a lot of movies, you know, you could put in them, but I think Marvel ones are the most, uh, uh, notor- notable and, and, you know, probably s- successful commercially. But then, you know, John Wick, you have the sort of other end of that, you know, I guess like, I don't know what you would call it, like the, uh, you know, action movies for adults or whatever. And, you know, you have later stuff, which I know you don't like this movie um, at all, Andrew, but uh, the, oh no, I'm, I'm blanking out the Charlize Theron um, um, spy thriller. The um, Atomic oh Blonde. God. Atomic Blonde, yeah. Atomic Blonde, thank you. Um, yeah, Atomic that. Blonde, yeah. which is very much like riffing on John Wick. And like, I think John Wick establishes like, if you don't want to be a franchise Marvel movie, what are your movies going to be like? This They're is what you got to do. Physical. They're going to be extremely neon. They're going to be extremely like brooding. And you may have like a kind of like, uh, you know, electronica score and like all the sets are going to look like art installments and things like that. I think you're exactly right. Like these are the two directions that action movies went over the course of the decade. Um, one for like genre purists almost, uh, or or like genre genre buffs, maybe you could say. Um, and then the other direction, like action doesn't matter at all. You know, we don't. There doesn't. There don't need to be beautiful action set pieces in these Marvel films. Um, it, you just have to like give the sense that the the characters are achieving their goals or or changing in some way um and you can just put a big like cgi mess over it to get there um but what people were enjoying i think what people were enjoying about winter soldier was not the action not not necessarily the 70s paranoia thriller stuff but the way in which it was connected to the rest of the mcu and the way that these characters are being developed and problematized um or complicated i should say 
Um, and and I think that there's a straight line from that to um, like Infinity War and Endgame, where uh, the, again the action doesn't really matter. It's all about the interconnectedness of the characters. And also connecting these to some of the others I mentioned at the beginning of this, um, I think that movies like Lucy and Snowpiercer and Edge of Tomorrow are three action movies that kind of steer away from either model of John Wick or Winter Soldier. They may like take kind of some of the conventional action uh, plot beats, but they're also like very entertaining, self-contained, stylized products very original Uh, yeah yeah i I think all three kind of stand alone as being i mean john wick has turned into a franchise and marvel speaks for itself but lucy snowpiercer and edge of tomorrow are three um movies that i I think lucy probably did the best in terms of like box office uh out of the three of them but three the three of them are, are very kind of unsung really entertaining action movies that still play like effectively today as they did in 2014 and Lucy, you know, you say that it probably did the best box office wise. I think that it's done the worst in terms of reputation. I think that movie really got lambasted in the pop culture landscape because of its, um, you know, regrettable tagline about people only using 10% of their brains. Uh, and, and I guess that's like baked into the, the conceit of the movie too. Like that's nonsense, but it actually is a really, really good action movie. Um, I'm a big fan of it. Um, you know, while we're talking about irritating 2010s uh, trends, the, the like... N- uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson-ish criticism of movies is very irritating. Oh, the, yeah, the cinema sins, the cinema sinsization. Yeah, because like film honestly, like you're watching Lucy like, and like who cares criticism. if it's real, like quote unquote, you know, like s- same yeah. with Snowpiercer, like it's who amazing. cares if like <laughs> an entire civilization of people can really live on a long train, like it, you know, it doesn't matter, like because. <laughs> Is in service of the movie. Um, that's not the point of the. That's not the point of the plot. It's a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, yeah. that was that was always kind of silly. Yeah. Uh, although although I think like that specific Lucy tagline like ticked a lot of boxes for like a growing like irritation online with like a different like pseudosciency like kind of new agey stuff. Well, shall we pivot from action to horror? Because I think that this is also a watershed year for where horror would end up going this decade. Yeah, no, I think... So you have movies like um, The Babadook, uh, The Guest, Under the Skin, and Enemy. And this this very much feels like kind of the harbinger of the, quote, elevated horror uh, trend that is very much... um, paying the bills at a 24 at the moment um and it, it, it's in because i think all all four of these i mean i haven't watched under the skin since it came out but all four of these are, are, are i remember being very good movies um and i think that are yeah i like i like all these movies a lot and actually. i think and i think also kind of like it's unfair to label them under that umbrella because they're doing really interesting things and don't feel like it's, 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 it's unfair that they get labeled with like a quiet place because these are one of the movies that John Krasinski watched in, in order to make this, you know? Well, this is the, the trend emerging like as it's emerging, right? So this, this is not anybody trying to, ride a wave of popularity of these kinds of movies this this was the moment of these kinds of movies becoming popular on their own merit because people liked them right um i was talking to you guys before we hit record on this about the release of the babadook you know that's an australian film and uh or is it new zealand new zealand australian i think it's australian 
Right it's Australian. That? It's Australian. It's an Australian film. It did not get um, much of a release in the states at all, um, but it was getting talked about uh, because it was being released in other places, and it was it got a release in I assume New York and L.A. And I just remember it being a big topic of conversation online, um, and um, there there was this big grassroots campaign to get the Babadook playing near people. Uh, it was kind of like. Uh, paranormal activity uh, how we talked about that um, several weeks ago when we were doing our found footage series uh, there's a website you could go to and request the Babadook play um, at your theater and the the closest theater that it came to us was was Asheville North Carolina a couple hours away and I remember driving with um, Jordan and, and Jessica uh, maybe somebody else to go see that um, but like that w- that was not a movie that anyone would have predicted would become this like iconic pop culture moment uh, because it's an it, again it's an indie film directed by a woman made in Australia no wide release but people wanted to see it when they heard about it and it eventually got put on streaming and uh, it it. I got a much wider fan base from there and even like garnered meme status and all that stuff. Um, so like, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, like ground zero, as you said earlier, Zach, for, you know, this, this, this new type of like, I don't want to say new type of metaphorical, allegorical artsy horror movie because these kinds of horror movies have existed forever. But, um, on this specific indie scale. Yeah, it was a way to sell it to the masses as more than just yeah. the kind of hidden, dark, you know, art house, uh, c- kind of weird, esoteric in- uh, indie horror movie. Like, it it was a way to kind of sell it as, like... Because the Babadook was, was um, sold as, like, it's super terrifying. That's why you should go see... You know, it kind of had that very straight appeal that movies like Jaws or Psycho or, you know, of just you have to go see it because it's, yeah. it's going to terrify you. Um, but at the same time, like, I think that especially like the Babadook and Under the Skin and Enemy are not... I mean, the Babadook is frightening, but it's not like... It's it's not going to have the scare appeal of like The Exorcist for you. It's doing a lot more than that. Um, and so it's like... It is like... Okay, I was going to say, it kind of feeds into like this sort of symbiotic relationship that like uh, a lot of movies have had with uh, film journalism uh, in the past few years too, which is that like this whole like... Uh, this is going to sound dismissive, but I don't necessarily mean it as that. Like, the kind of, like, I guess, like, um, the ability to have a woke take on a movie. Um, so, like, if a movie has a very clear, like, metaphor, like, under the skin or the Babadook or whatever, like, that, you know, the Slate article writes itself. Um, and I think that there's, like, definitely been, like, that interplay between, like, movies and particularly, like, the, you know, quote-unquote, like, elevated horror, these kind of, like, you know, artistically minded like uh you know indie horror indie-ish horror movies like i think those have been bolstered by the kind of you know writing that's been done on them and i also think that there's a little cottage industry of writing you know that has arisen as a result of these movies as well and i think that these movies being popular and being popularized in that specific way um it does kind of owe a debt to what horror was doing in the 2000s, which was whether, whether it was like 
thoughtless or not, it was definitely regarded by the masses as kind of thoughtless. You know, that that was the... You're talking about, like, Eli Roth. Yeah, this was the era of the quote-unquote torture porn film. It was also the era of the found footage film after all the Paranormal Activity movies came out. And we the horror audiences were just saturated with this, like, hyper-violent um, kind of cookie-cutter stuff. Uh, like all the Saw movies came out in the 2000s as well. And there were like seven of them, right? So like after 10 years of that, when you hear about, again, this small Australian film directed by a woman that's really about grief, um, I think there's a certain subset of horror fans who their ears really perk up um, to that. And and that kind of spins out into its whole new sort of cookie cutter model that... Um, that various uh, distributors get to um, crib on. Well, I think a big portion of like that, I don't know if you're re- you know, reacting to the 2000s, like quote unquote torture porn or whatever. I mean, you know, say what you will about those movies, but they were, they were forging new ground. And I think one of the oh, big things yeah. in, um, you know, horror in the 2010s is this sort of conscious nostalgia. Um, so you have like, we listed the guest, which isn't exactly a horror movie, but it, as Adam Wingard who did like your next and, and, you know, was important for other movies, but that's like a very conscious throwback to a certain type of like movie in the eighties, you know, with the kind of, um, almost like slashery element to it with the, um, with, um, uh, the, the main, you know, the main antagonist. You also have like the, you also have like the, the main character played by Dan Stevens who kind of has like this almost, um, he kind of has that eighties like Schwarzenegger and the Terminator, just kind of blank, blank slate, uh, you know, personality like that completely fits into that mold that you're describing. Right. And then like, I mean, you basically mash like the Babadook's metaphorical aims with the guests, like aesthetic aims and you get, it follows the next year. Um, which I think is like really when you see that the, 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 the self-consciousness of like that kind of elevated horror, like fully form, um, and so I think like, you know, in a lot of ways, like these movies are like, I don't know if it's fair to call all of them throwbacks, but there are like classical elements to a lot of these movies that I think really stuck. Um, and that eventually manifests itself as a sort of nostalgia for like an eighties or what, you know, whatever, you know, so to the point where you have like something like, uh, Midsommar this year being like very consciously modeled after like, you know, Wicker Man and like all that sort of seventies, like folk horror and also, um, it's an important element of all these movies that they they look very directed, um, even if the directorial choices aren't particularly meaningful. I remember that was the um, the central that was the crux of the cinematary talk on Midsommar, which is a movie that I like, and and uh, Michael, I know you like as well. But that was one issue that a lot of people had with it was like he's just doing all these all this like symmetry and and fancy camera tricks that ultimately don't really service anything other than making the film look like a film made by an artist. Um, and that's been a huge characteristic of indie horror for the past uh, couple of years. Which, to tie it back to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, I mean, that's I think that that's also a criticism you can levy against, like, the progeny of John Wick as well, is that those movies' selling point in a lot of ways is, like, look at this, like, one-take fight that we did that's, like, you know, really gorgeously lit or, like, However, that sort of like, thing. To go back to my point about those movies being eaten up by a certain type of action purist, like these are people who aren't going to the movie for story or character or theme, but for craft. 
And if what you want is to be able to see the action, then um, like that that kind of like very uh, consciously directed uh, style works really well in that genre. I agree, and I agree with the. I think that's true of the horror movies too. Like I think, you know, I I like seeing a really gorgeously shot horror movie regardless of whether or not I feel like the narrative fits together. Like, I think that there's a similar appeal there. Um, that's like worthwhile. And I would say that the Babadook, I mean, all these, all these four that we mentioned, Babadook, the guest under the skin enemy, I think they all hold up really well, both on a craft level and on any sort of, uh, like thematic interpretation you can pull out of them. But I think the Babadook especially is just tight on a, on a craft level, um, and, and I do think it is a really scary film. I don't know if it's the same type of scariness that, that you'd get out of a Saw film or, or The Exorcist, like you mentioned, Zach. Um, but I think that in, in terms of like ratcheting up this Hitchcockian suspense and then just like um, ha- having the, the, the trap set on you um, uh, in the ways that that movie does, it's all, it's all done extremely well. Well, there's the really extreme, like intense, like a uh, family dynamics too, which I think contributes to the horror as well. Um, which I think is another thing you see in the subsequent horror movies is that some of the horror comes out of things that are unconventionally, um, you know, not conventionally horrifying. Like something like you know, Hereditary, you know, another contentious thing in the cinematary world. But like you know, that's a movie that, like a lot of that movie is just like really torturous, like family drama, um, and it, it horrifying in its own way. Well, shall we move into another topic here? Um, I, I, I think, I think uh, this is a good time to shift over to the kind of the Oscar uh, discussion, which which became kind of just a overarching discussion, and that is uh, the the. <laughs> it seems like a like like a like a boxing match, but uh, you have B- Boyhood and Birdman, which was it seemed like the uh, the boxing match that just never ended that year. Um, I mean, looking. I haven't watched. Like I was saying, between between parts, that was the the rivalry that you had to take a side on during the day if you were a movie watching person. And uh, it is very well documented that I took the wrong side on on that argument. Uh, and and later later came to realize, oh, Boyhood is definitely the better film. <laughs> well, I mean, what's what was. Uh... I guess kind of going back, uh, we don't have our, our wonderful go back. Uh, I mean, we probably could we go back and find the episode, but I mean, we don't have that kind of time. So, I mean, kind of thinking back, what about this kind of matchup between these two movies as like the best movie of the year? I mean, what 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 do you, where do you see it here in 2019 compared to when it was happening? I mean, well, I mean, to go back to the conversation we've been having, um, I think I think it has to do with flashiness um, a little bit. I I remember being that that person who was very new to cinephilia and and new to making film criticism, seeing how show offy the the cinematic style of Birdman was, and just being really swept up in it. Um, and it, it's also like gesturing towards all these like really profound themes as well. You have people reading uh, Jorge Luis Borges and, and and things like that on the periphery of the film. And so it seems like and actually, really... look, can we say on that topic, can we say Birdman's whole title? Oh, yeah. Uh, which is Birdman or open parentheses, 
the unexpected virtue of ignorance, right. closed parentheses, so it, which I think it, is very <laughs> consciously labeling itself as important. It seems like an important p- movie for smart people, and I think that as as a person pursuing a literature degree at the time, I thought I was an important person, or a smart person who needed to watch important movies. Um, and I also found it really exciting and entertaining, which, if I went back and watched it now, I think that that would be the thing that would hold up the most about it, is that it it is an exciting and entertaining film full of a lot of uh, really good performances. Um, but it's not, I mean, a lot of the things that it it's doing, uh, to, to make this like artistic posture is full of hot air. Um, and, and boyhood is doing something much more, uh, understated and, uh, like, I don't know if humble is the right word, but humanistic for sure. Um, and and does end up being the more moving experience, I would say. Have you uh, returned to Boyhood since your slow cinema projects, Andrew? Say that again. Have sorry? you returned to Boyhood since your slow cinema projects, Andrew? Yes. Yeah, I, I watched it actually um, in the middle of all that. How do you feel like? Does, I mean, is it in? Con- I, I haven't seen it in a few years, but it it seems like in premise it's in conversation with some of the slow cinema dealings with like time and that sort of thing. Well, I think that now would be a good time to bring into the fold of this conversation uh, Before Midnight, which is one of the several movies that we didn't have time to talk about last week because there were just so many movies to talk about. We got bogged down in a couple. Um, But yeah, I really like Richard Linklater in general, but Richard Linklater works in a couple different modes. Uh, He has his like Bernie um, School of Rock mode that I'm obviously a huge fan of. I made that School of Rock video essay. But he also has a, a, quite a few movies that are dealing directly with time. Uh, you have the Before Trilogy films uh, documenting how um, actors uh, change in, uh, over the course of 30 plus years and also imagining the ways in which a character uh, dynamic could change over the same amount of years. Uh, you have a movie like uh, Slacker, which takes place over one 24-hour time period and and switches characters every 10 minutes or so, kind of seeing the day a day in the life of all these various people um along those lines i mean before um before sunset is uh, a movie in real time um which is kind of the reverse of what the scope of its like uh, trilogy is about isn't before midnight also in real time no just, not quite just there's some cuts uh that skip and then and then of course you get boyhood which is like I don't know if you would say it's the the opus of all of these uh, Linklater movies about time, but it's definitely the the best self-contained one. Um, before a trilogy might uh, dwarf it in terms of its scope, but um, yeah, just just seeing characters age um, in real time and and seeing the the cultural context shift around them uh, definitely different than what. Um, slow cinema filmmakers are doing in dealing with time um, because it's it's formally fairly engaging uh, and 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 trying to to move you on like this very immediate emotional level um, but it is it is doing something that those films cannot because it has this like meta structure that it's been made within um, it's like it's it's a it's an art experiment in a way um to to make a conventional movie like make a coming of age film this has been made a billion times but make it in this very um uh, ambitious uh way where the 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 world that the movie is being made within ends up changing the movie over time 
uh, and the and the actors growing up and being able to shift the direction of their characters in real time as they decide what they want their characters to start doing because this was not scripted in advance it was scripted year by year um, I mean it it is a really interesting experiment in time and and also again just like on on a base level a really powerful um, uh, emotional moving movie. Um, so I, I think that the movie is working on a lot of levels. Um, Zach, that was one of your favorites of the year too, right? I was going to say, I just want to point out that I was right back in 2014. Right history. I, I was, I, I had the right take. Um, I think it's, I think it's a, it's kind of funny to look back at it. I know that a lot of the, uh, the pokings that you can have at boyhood is one. It's not like wholly original. You have like something like the up series uh, where it's, it's looking over time. But I think that this is, this is a little bit different since it's, it's based in a narrative conceit and uh, it's kind of trying to hit everything all in one's fail swoop rather than being multiple documentaries. So that, you know, I don't necessarily buy into that. The other thing is just kind of poking at the very, um, kind of basicness the plainness of the uh a lot of the references and pop culture that uh you kind of come across over the course of the movie but at the same time like doesn't it open with a Coldplay song it does there's a Coldplay song there's a soldier boy tell him there's um a lot of like dragon ball z and pokemon and, and harry potter gets mentioned like it's a really interesting time capsule um in addition to just being a great narrative. That's what I was going to say. I mean, it, it, it like fits in the mold of like what it's doing. I don't think it's like, it's necessarily uh, like uh, endorsing or agreeing with any of these like thing. Like I like, it's not like Richard Linklater's going, I love all of these things, but it's more, it's very indicative of what the kind of cultural consciousness was at the, at that period of time. And I think that in itself is really interesting just to kind of go back and use to investigate to kind of, um, because I think that, uh, you know, we can go back and look at pop culture at it, through the lens of the things that we are interacting with. But to kind of go back and watch it through um, as like a third party to the interacting and, and just kind of like, I mean, you, you look at the scene where the the main character is like interacting with his friends at like this Harry Potter uh, party thing. I mean, they're, I think I, I think regardless of whether you now in 2019 like any of that stuff or whatever, I, I think that I, I think as a time capsule, it works. And I want to say again that I pointed that out in 2014. So I'm just really wanting to vindicate 2014, Zach. As, yeah, as we discussed <laughs> last week, Zach's been correct since the beginning. Yeah, he was taking some hits in 2014, and I needed the vindication. Um, <laughs> Now, looking at the, you mentioned this was the big Oscar race that year, Boyhood versus Birdman. Uh, looking at the rest of the Oscar winners, uh, you got a lot of movies that uh, have not been talked about since. Uh, Talk about the, a time capsule. The Theory man. of Everything is one, um, as well as, oh, what was the other, the nerd biopic uh, movie? Oh, the Imitation, Imitation Game. Game. Both uh, are, uh, are STEM nerd biopics, neither of which are right. good. Uh, Still Alice is here. Um, uh, Fox Catcher. Uh, people definitely still talk about American Sniper, but I think that's like a film Twitter thing. Um, yeah, I mean that's the Clint Eastwood auteurism. But at the time, American Sniper was a huge like lightning rod, um, massive, massive hit, massive like 
you know, um, kind of conservative touchstone with, um, uh, what's his name? Kyle, what's it? Chris Kyle. Thank you. Um, you know, the controversy surrounding him, like I think buoyed that movie quite a bit because you had the, uh, whole discourse about like the, the, you know, perceived jingoism of the movie, which I've not seen the movie, so I don't really have a stake, but, uh, you know, versus like, have you seen that Zach American sniper? Oh yeah. No, I went and saw it in theaters. Um, because it was, it was out of all the movies that we've talked about. It was very much like a kind of in the same realm of like boyhood Birdman, where you had to have an opinion. Everybody's I, I, talking I about avoided. It. Yeah. yeah. I avoided American sniper for a very long time. Cause I just was like, I don't, I just don't want to watch it. Um, but it finally, it was like, you had to like speak on it. Um, <laughs> give your opinion on it. Uh, I remember going to the theater and watching it like on in an afternoon, like on a Wednesday and it was me and a bunch of older people. And at the end they have like this whole montage of like, I I can't remember if it was Chris Kyle or it's like uh, archival footage of him, like at Cowboy Stadium, like at some halftime ceremony thing. And like a a bunch of people in the theater, like stood up and like saluted and shit. Mm, And it was like, yeah, Yeah. it was like uh, it was like some cabaret vibes going on there. Audience engagement for that movie is not the same, not for the same reasons that film Twitter Probably is. Not. Um, this, I mean, this Oscar race is also kind of interesting time capsule because you have a few people like Linklater and then Wes Anderson with Grand Budapest Hotel as like almost veterans who worked their way into Oscar ability. Um, but then you also have a couple of new voices who are kind of crowned at this uh, Oscar. So you have Selma um, from Ava DuVernay and then Whiplash, um, you know, which of course would, you know, La La Land would go on to um, halfway win the Oscar um, for Best Picture. Um, but, you know, so it's an interesting split. And then, of course, Clint Eastwood is American Sniper, who's been there forever. And then uh, uh, Inuritu, who's he, he was around for a while. Also, Chris Nolan for Interstellar yeah. gets a, a couple nods Interstellar. there. Interstellar, guys, Interstellar, pretty good. That's I like Interstellar a lot. <laughs> it's I, fine. I just, Interstellar's a good It's fine. I, I think it's good. I think it's a good one. Um, I, I, since we're kind of uh, getting uh, long on time, I do want to hit before we get out uh, the animation circle of this year because there was a lot of really interesting animated movies. Um, real quickly before we jump into the one we're going to dig into more in depth, what was the Pixar Disney offerings of this year? Uh, Just so we have that frame of reference. Disney was Big Hero 6, which I think is of of the Disney movies this past decade is probably the one that you can make the biggest case for having been forgotten. Uh, super rel- forgettable. I've watched it recently and it's super forgettable. It's super <laughs> forgettable. Um, was there, was there was a Pixar, Pixar movie? There's also oh, how to train your dragon Two came out this year. Um, and then on, on the more indie level of things, uh, we have box trolls, uh, which, you know, did did not do very well in the box office, and uh, Leica was worried that they might close their doors, as they do after you know all three of all their last three films <laughs> that have had a very similar experience. Um, and then we have uh, Cartoon Saloon, uh, Tom Moore's studio with Song of the Sea as well. Um, also, the Lego Movie. Oh yeah, the Lego Movie. This was an off year for Pixar. <laughs> so the Lego but... Movie is a really good one to. That was a, a big topic of conversation in our first episode, I believe. Um, or at least the first couple of episodes of Cinematary. Uh, we were all very skeptical about the fact that Zach was uh, excited about that film. And uh, 
Another one he ended up being right on. Though I, I've soured on it a little bit. I still think it's good. I'm really enjoying this series because I'm just getting a lot of vindications. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm like I'm gonna be like George and Seinfeld. I'm just gonna go out on a high. I'm quitting after this. Um, it's the summer of George. Yeah. Uh, but no, it. It. I just looked. So this was the year that Pixar didn't have a movie. It was in between Monsters University and uh, uh, Inside Out, which was kind of a little bit of a gap between. Uh, it, it, we talked about it, I think Mike a little bit um, in the 2010 because Brave like I, Brave is not a bad movie but it was like the first Pixar movie that kind of started getting that like it wasn't just overall consensus that people really people liked it. People started to be worried. Wasn't exactly. A, yeah. Wasn't Cars kind of the, the first chink in the armor? Or Cars, Cars 2? When did Cars 2 come out? Uh, Cars 2 for sure but Cars the first one I think he just had that wide appeal but it's so you have like Brave it, I, yeah I guess Car, I guess Cars 2 is a good one so you have Cars 2 you have Brave and you have Monsters University which Cars 2 and Monsters University are you know unequivocally pretty poor movies uh, yeah, before you get yeah. to I like Monsters University but that's, that's you like one. what? I like Monsters University but oh come on <laughs> Don't be silly, <laughs> Michael. Um, it, it's gonna be it, better than this. It's but it's interesting because you have Inside Out, which kind of like reignited all this good faith in Pixar, and then you moved. But it's also the same year that the Good Dinosaur comes out. Remember the Good Dinosaur? Yeah, and then it was just all downhill. So from I there. also like yeah. the Good Dinosaur. Michael, but come why don't on. we move on to uh, Michael? The, <laughs> so is that whole per- the good dinosaur have a, like a, a Ralph Bakshi relationship with? Is that though, is but, that uh, core member status like a like a for sure thing? Like is there like a temporary period? I'm really I'm really testing the <laughs> weight of uh, testing the the pencil strength. But let's, <laughs> but let's with our with our with our time you know with our four to five minutes left. Let's talk about the the most interesting uh, animated movie, and I'm gonna turn that over to you guys. Yeah. Um... Michael, I'll let you talk on this more, but I, I just want to say that this is probably my pick for the best film of the year, um, and that is um, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya by Isao Takahata, his last movie, um, I think the last Studio Ghibli film. Um, and is When Marnie Was There also came out this year, was that before or after? It was before Kaguya, Kaguya. yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know... Interestingly, we, we are going to, after we record this podcast, we're about to record another podcast, a Patreon episode about um, this essay about the theory of animation. And uh, I think that the death of hand-drawn animation is definitely uh, something that, that came about in the early 2010s. And this is maybe like the last great hand-drawn animated masterpiece Um Hopefully not the last, but it's the most recent uh, hand-drawn animated masterpiece, I would say. Uh, Michael, um, what are your general thoughts on Taylor Princess Kaguya? I mean, I love this movie to death. Um, I think it's great. It's, like, one of the very best Studio Ghibli movies. I would put it up on the tier of, like, My Neighbor Totoro and uh, Spirited Away and, uh, you know, uh, Grave of the Fireflies and that, that sort of stuff. Um I I think it's it's beautiful. It is, you know, the one the one knock is that it's it's a little long. It's like it's like an hour tw- or two hours and twenty minutes or something like that. It's it's long, but it's not no, dull. not at all. Um, um, and I think I think it justifies its length, and it also is with that length is able to set a very deliberate 
pace that works in the movie's favor. Um, and I recently showed it to um, teenagers uh, through my little Japanese cinema club thing that I, I do. And uh, they they were all um, very engaged with it um, through through the very, very long yeah. time. Well, I think on a moment-by-moment basis, it's just so engaging because like every frame of this movie just looks like so beautiful and in motion it's even better like i I rewatched this a couple weeks ago and uh the thing that struck me this time aside from just the general aesthetic um which is like you know like no other movie i've I've really seen it 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 kind of like feels like the much 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 better um movie uh like the aesthetic uh execution of what like uh um uh the my neighbor, the Yamoto. Wait, I'm sorry. My I'm neighbors, the it. Yamadas. Yeah, my my neighbors, the Yamotos, In the sense that it's like the kind of like consciously drawn, kind of faded, um, expressionistic um, uh, paintings. But like this is just so much more lush um, and beautiful. But one of the things I noticed is in motion, like how good the motions are. Like so, like hair moves in this movie in a way that like no other animated movie I've ever seen hair move before. Um, and they the the figures that they're drawing, um, they don't need to spend time like fussing with their hair and like push putting specific strands of hair behind their ears and things like that. But they do. Um, I think that's just a, a trademark of Ghibli films of like really, um, committing to realistic human action. Like there's a, there's a bit of the special features on the spirited away Blu-ray where they talk about when uh, Chihiro puts her shoe on, she, she stomps her foot on the ground to like make sure her foot is like firmly in the shoe. Um, and a similar thing is happening with the way people deal with their hair and their robes and, and all, all the various, um, you know, regal, um, stuff on the outside of them in this film. I, I agree. Um, I do think that this movie is a lot more interesting than like Studio Ghibli movies have that great attention to detail that like I think at some times like verges on a little bit stuffy um, in maybe some of the less engaging Ghibli movies in the sense that like it all feels so so very like considered and like, um, you know, a little bit. Um, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but just um, a little bit of an end to itself. And I think like this movie has a perfect like balance between the stylization, uh, and then that, that attention to detail. So like those little movements that are like, you know, quote unquote realistic, um, are given this life, you know, like again, on the hair, um, these, the hair, you know, looks just like someone like took like pencil sketches or something like, um, and then, um, or like that mid mid film scene where, um, you know, uh, Kaguya, uh, like, is running away running. and everything becomes, like, extremely sketchy and you see, like, these, like, lines. But at the same time, there's a really, like, as she's running, you can kind of tell her body movements and they're they're really, like, detailed, like, you know, how she's, like, stumbling over, like, uh, different elements of the landscape and stuff. Um, and I, I think this movie walks a really great line between looking, you know, realistic attention to detail and, like, this expressionism that, like, feels like it could only have taken place in animation. Right. And um, the backgrounds are all oil paintings. The um, line drawing is meant to look like charcoal, um, though it's not it's not actually charcoal. But it's also based on the oldest extent, like Japanese fictional narrative. Um, And and so like it has this great lineage to it, like connecting to like early Japanese history to 
Um, Isao Takahata at the end of his life, like making his last great masterpiece. And it also is, it has this sci-fi bent to it too, because it, I, I guess if you haven't seen the film, I shouldn't spoil the ending of the film, but it does have this uh, random, not, not necessarily random, but uh, unexpected being whisked off into the, into the spirit world at the end of the film that uh, feels apt for the specific time in which it was made Isao um, Takahata nearing the end of his career and the end of his life and also we're kind of leaving behind a certain era of animation that doesn't exist anymore uh, which is sad well I really like the way that this I mean they're, they're, Andrew I know you and I have both taught like mythology and, and fairy tales slash folk tales uh, to our students and there's a really particular like strangeness to those stories that a lot of times gets kind of uh, massaged out as we retell them, you know, so like things like uh, Sleeping Beauty or whatever are much less conventional in their like oldest forms than uh, we're used to now. And I think this movie kind of is one of the rare movies that feels like it preserves that kind of strange like folklorish feeling to it, you know, the kind of weird left turn you're talking about toward like this fantastical uh, bent, like feels really like folklorish and interesting. Um, and, you know, the fact that this movie just kind of commits to that and doesn't really apologize or try to massage out some of the strangeness of, like, what a, you know, what these old stories are. And also doesn't doesn't um, apologize or whitewash any of the, the horrible shit that happens to this historical princess, right? I mean, it's a fictional story, right? But it's set in a very historical time period. Um, and it's a princess movie that doesn't glamorize the life of being a princess uh which is an interesting um point of comparison to the whole like industry of disney princess films that you know frozen 2 just came out last week (laughs) so as a movie that is not doing what american animation is doing um it it is worthy of being treasured but also like in a as a movie on its own right, um, it's incredibly masterful, very moving. Um, and again, I think it's probably the best film of that year. Zach, I know that you wanted an opportunity to say uh, your feelings on this movie as well before we go. Yeah, no, I. it's it's tough to condense it into so many words, but I like this movie. <laughs> can, I, can I also say before we leave, Inherent Vice, so we don't get yelled at, Inherent Vice, great freaking movie I, I rewatched it for the first time since 2014 a couple weeks ago a plus josh brolin in that movie is something it's, it's on another good. level just gonna say josh brolin and that fudge <laughs> that that for sure uh he also at one point tells joaquin phoenix's character that he is a renaissance cop and it it's <laughs> fucking hilarious <laughs> no he's like like you may not find the entire movie funny, but just Josh Brolin in himself is funny in that movie. So Inherent Vice, that's all. I think Inherent Vice, when it's not funny, it's sad, and I like both of those moods. I like both of those moods. All right. Um, well, I, I believe this will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter at handle at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we put all the movies that we talked about in this episode in the little box there so you can see what we're watching. Uh, check us out on Patreon. Like we said, we're about to record a Patreon episode, so we're going to be super freaking tired during that. So it'll be an interesting chat. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> 
You can find us on <laughs> patreon.com slash The chill cin- part's going to be really chill. It's going to be super chill. Uh, patreon.com slash cinematary. Thank you so much to Cam, Chad Newsom, Christopher Metcalf, Cindy Roberts, Eric Dukowski, Graham Jones, Harry Eskin, Maggie, Marie Barty, Matthew Lingo, Ron Hayes, Tyler Chandler, Whitney Real Ross. Uh, thank you so much for your patronage. Uh, next week, you know how years work. It's 2015. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs>